Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Mangum Reads. As per usual, I am Spencer, and with me forming our triumphal triumvirate of tautological textualism, I have Sarah and BJ. How y'all doing? I'm good. I'm blown away by your alliteration. Yeah, I'm very impressed. I'm sort of curious who you are when you are unusually somebody else, but we'll save that for uh, another time. I wear many hats. Today I am Spencer. If other people were asking, you know, ponder before you answer. Yeah, but enough. for this week, we are again exploring the, word, the uh, works of Nadia Kofor, this time going through the Kabu Kabu short stories, which um, was interesting to read about the background of it. It seems like it's kind of a cross-section of uh, 13 years, at least, of her career in terms of when these stories came about. Yeah, uh, um, it, it, it seemed like a fairly long time in her career, and then this is a compendium, um, which... I would say is fairly common for a lot of authors to take, you know, a series of works over a fairly large period of time to put in a compendium. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I really almost wish some of these short stories that we read, which I did I quite enjoy several of these, uh, had dates attached to them. Because they seem like, some of them seem like they came from different eras for her, or at least different focus points. Yeah, um, and it, it definitely... Well, like, yeah, it does... Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, like, the technology available to the main characters or something along those lines. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, she does kind of seem to go through a lot of different iterations of genres as well. Um, but we can, as we're talking, I have pulled up at the very back of the book, there is a publication history that will tell uh-huh. you when they first came out. That quality investigation that we appreciate of you, Sarah. Uh, <laughs> in terms of This is what I can bring here. <laughs> in terms of order to go through these, I feel like we just kind of have to start with Magical Negro because it feels like the author's foreword before anyone continues to read further. Yeah, I mean, I think it does really set up the collection um, and really how you are meant to be reading the collection. Yeah. And I think this is a very, you know, I understand this might be your expectation of what's going to be in this collection. You need to drop that now and then keep reading. <laughs> Let me divorce you of your preconceptions just right now before you get any farther. Um, no. So the, the, the magical Negro sort of starts out with, And she's very much touching on all of the tropes that we expect in a fantasy novel. Um, And very much a high fantasy novel, right? Yes, exactly. And so so. the main character is Lance the Brave, and he has a sword, and, you know, this is a wonderful sword, and he, you know, he holds his longsword high, and, you know, he's about to be attacked by this uh, marauding evil yeah, it's undescribed like black shadow beasts of some kind. You know, generic evil creatures while his long hair still constantly blows in a breeze that's it's, um, buffeting him against this cl- almost like cliffside that he's uh, been forced onto. Yeah, you can very much see this scene being the uh, cover picture for a certain genre of novels. Mm-hmm. And fitting is, is often the case in those genre of novels. Uh, a very classic trope shows up to seemingly rescue him while he's on the edge of this cliff. The so-said magical Negro, another extension of the magical Native American, or various other magical, quote-unquote, savage people that have no real role in the story other than to appear and save the hero or impart him with important knowledge and otherwise have very little relevance to the plot or very little story on their own behalf. We certainly never get... That in the trope of the magical Negro, we never get any sort of backstory of how they have come to be in this moment where they are coming to save um, 
to save the white man, right? Oh, yeah. They they typically have almost no stake in the game. They're committing a massive act of sacrifice in their own part to save the white man from his problems. Just seemingly out of the kindness of their own heart for nothing that's being offered in return. I would say there are two choices. One, it's either, you know, for no apparent reason, or, like, the white man has come in to save their land, and it's like, Uh, oh, well, let me assist you in, you know, clearing... I'm... And immensely powerful, but you're the one to help clear the land of the evil, right. so let me assist you in your quest. You are, right. the, you are the chosen one. I just hold the sword for you for the last 30 years. Yeah. And so, yeah, we can also think about things like, um, you know, like the Green Mile is an example of this type of trope. Um, I, I, I think an even better one might be, uh, have you guys ever seen The Legend of Bagger Vance? The Legend of Bagger Vance is certainly one, yeah. Um, you can even get a little bit into... Um, Oh my god, I've just forgotten the name of it, and that's not going to help, so move on. <laughs> Give us a hand. <laughs> <laughs> nope, I'll get there. I'll get okay. there. It's okay. fine. But very quickly, he you know starts to fulfill his trope in terms of he's starting to impart the important knowledge about how he can solve the problem and save himself. He gets promptly stabbed and dies, before, actually, well, before he can even impart the knowledge. Oh, you, but... so you, you, you got that he was... Uh, okay, I guess stabbed... So, so I guess I read it as something magical happening rather than like more of a more physical stabbing. But he, he, he'd been pierced with an evil blackness deeper than his own. If you want to believe that literally or not, yeah, sure. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and then I guess I, I sort of imagine this as uh, people playing roles like mm-hmm. in a movie or play <laughs> or, or something along those lines where it's a modern... The setting is actually modern, but the story being told is fantastical. Yes. This, I mean, it reminded me a lot of certain Dave Chappelle skits I've seen about how the character's been tasked with playing a role and then suddenly has decided, you know what, fuck this shit. This, this, this is this is tropey before we even started doing this. Let's actually tell you the real story. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, what what I read this is, as is very much a sort of, like, self-aware, cognizant playing with this idea of like, this is what I'm supposed to do as the magical Negro. I'm really, really tired of this. Yeah. And it's just like, and, and so as Spencer said, you know, literally that is this, the line, you know, what the fuck is this bullshit? And so then the magical Negro basically calls out the tropes and says, Mm -hmm. you know, this is BS, you know, I've, I'm super powerful and I'm going to die. Like I can control these shadows. Why am I the one that's going to die to them? And then, you know, save this, you know, dude prancing around that doesn't even know what's going on. And I'm the one to tell him the power of the amulet that he's been carrying around for months. And, and he hasn't bothered to try and even figure out what's going on. And, you know, the entire role that I have in this story is, is the, Hey, the amulet that you have this is how it works. Okay, now I die. Yeah, I love his line. Like, like I ain't got no family of my own to risk my life for one shit. It's just like, the the nature of this trope and character is to have no independent will, no independent role. He is there to be the equivalent of the stone holding the sword for King Arthur, um, and has no other real consideration for what you know his particular motivation might be. This particular manifestation of that trope has no desire to continue with that trope. Uh, to the point of even offing the main character out of annoyance at his stupidity. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, he, bas- as he pushes the uh, main character off of the cliff, um, or, you know, magically or not, and, you know, it's just like, I've had enough of this, and wanders off. Yeah, it, um, and they, they focus on the main, uh, the main character as well, that um, it kind of natural continuation of this trope is just the inherent racism and having a black character there to serve, and the main character having very little consideration to ever ask the black, the uh minority character of many walks and this is a trope that you see pretty much in terms of any any person that's viewed as being part of the wide world to assess the civilized hero um never asks that character what they want or what their motivations are how he can help them and here while he's hearing all of this he immediately starts to think about how well this guy's skin is black therefore he must something evil must have happened to him what curse is inflicted upon him to make him look as he is uh, just really focusing on the the latent inherent racism that's just kind of assumed in the role of the hero for this. Yeah, no, we're really investigating the sort of like capital O otherness that hap- that like really drives a lot of fantasy novels. Um, the the idea of the kind of other outside of this nation or kingdom or whatever it is that poses some sort of inherent threat, um, but that is also left sort of hazy and unknown and. Mm-hmm. Um, unexplored um, and somehow alien, right? And this is really turning it on its head by allowing a kind of reclaiming of that story and of that voice and also a reclaiming of what the narrative is going to do, which is, you know what? I'm not going to save this asshole. Yep. Um, and and so I really like the... Um, all right, I listened to him die. I'm done. And then walks off. Um while, and, while seemingly manifesting an outfit for himself before he does. Yeah. And I I really like this story, and I wish it had ended before the last two paragraphs. I think that's fair. I am looking at the last two paragraphs right now. Um, and it seems to be... So what happens in the last two paragraphs is that he gets a sort of like... Um, very Well, very short soliloquy at the end of it, um, sort of speaking directly to the reader, saying you really need to stop reading all of this like high fantasy nonsense. Um, It's got all of these problems with it. And then he walks off into the forest kind of in search of all of this other high fantasy nonsense. Um, And I agree. It felt a little too, like those two paragraphs felt a little too self-aware. He could have just walked off. um, And I think we would have gotten that same impression. Yeah. And I I don't know. It just, I think it takes like a really a fun story that sort of turns the trope on its head and then is just like this is a problem that books have and you should just you know i'm calling it out you know barefaced and it i don't know it spoils in many ways to me what would otherwise be a very tight really interesting and fun short story and then i guess i also really didn't like the um, you know, he rested the red cane on his shoulder and strolled off into the forest, which just almost reimagined that trope of sort of a, a pimp walking off. And I just didn't like that. Well, I, I think that that is like a reclaiming. I, I read that very much like all of all of the ending of this I read as a, as a reclaiming of the stereotypes um, that various narratives put on um, both African Americans, um, Black people, as well as kind of the magical Negro figure, like 
I'm going to own these stereotypes um, in a way to undercut them. It's definitely apparent that, um, should we just call the, this character the Magical Negro? They never actually give him a name, right? He actually just referred to as the Magical no, there's, Negro. No, there's not a name. They really call him the African Man. Uh, oh, no, they do call him the Magical Negro as well. Uh, I mean, he is... He is, a, he is subverting a stereotype by being another stereotype. I mean, he is fitting a very... His, speak, his speaking style and the image that he's presenting in terms of the outfit that he walks off with is just kind of emerging into a different stereotype, which is either mo- a certain mocking of itself of where this book is subverting stereotypes, but let me end it with another stereotype going off. It's either in some ways mocking what it's trying to do, or it's reclaiming it, or I don't know. It, it is an interesting graphical choice to wrap it up. I... I, too, didn't particularly like these last two paragraphs. I thought it could end it very well without the author emerging from the page to directly tell you what she's doing. She does that with a couple of these stories, which I didn't necessarily like in terms of a style. It's almost like that she's doing a reading, and then she's wrapping up with her own comments on it, in terms of how some of these stories are structured. We see, we see it also with um, another one I liked quite a bit, Spider the Artist, of where the last two oh, lines are just... that's one of my favorites, yeah. I like that one quite a bit. I didn't think, like, the last paragraph or so was necessary, because it's doing the exact same thing here. Okay, let me now state my theme to you, as if I'm speaking directly to the reader. It feels unnecessary in terms of, I get it, I read it. You don't have to end with a very self-referential way of, uh, of finishing your story. Yeah, and I might go back and... Um look at the publication dates on some of those that do that um, because I feel like some of the stories in here that I also really that I also really like do the very tight kind of open-ended well this doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. but they are a tight story that ends with a kind of more open-ended interpretative um, possibility at the end I'm thinking about like the baboon wars for example mm-hmm. which does not do this commentary at the end of it um, and kind of leaves the mystery of the situation for the reader more without this kind of narrative voice coming in. Yeah, and I wonder if that's not something that she sort of grew out of, but might be, you know, story dependent, because that's what happened in Binti at the very end that we, you know, in our last episode took, that, that Spencer really took issue with uh, among some of the other things that we were talking about. And so... I guess I sort of wonder if some of that uh, talking to the reader is because of, as we discussed last time, the audience that this is for. I think that's a possibility. Yeah. As it is structured in this book, uh, she really wants you to get which, where she's going with this. This this story is very much, it's not setting a tone. It's kind of tonally inconsistent with whatever else we're reading. Or at least it's not follow, It's not having the same comedic mocking focus. But it's still a very clear speaking to the reader about, okay, you're exploring my work. Throw away your preconceptions. Throw away the tropes. Throw away what you're bringing to this. Let me tell my own story and let you let you see where it goes. Yeah, and that's a lot of, a lot of the type of, rhetoric that Okorafor uses when talking about her work as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think what it says to me, um, because I was talking in the last episode a little bit about her TED Talk, um, which is specifically about finding a different type of sci-fi that 
speaks outside of the normal audiences of sci-fi, right? And speaks to other people and kind of reaches threads out out from that. The problem is I think when you embark on some of that on that type of project, which I think is is really valuable and I think she does it really really well in a lot of different places, is that it can lead to a kind of cycle in which you are always trying to defend your project. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is part of the cycle that she has gotten stuck in. It's, it's something we have to say about, I mean, I, I, I should have said this more about Binti, but re, I took the time to read through the Amazon reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was heartwarming to see how many people were saying, this is my first science fiction book. And I'm so fascinated now with the genre. Where oh, how, yeah. how much this opened people up to a genre they previously found opaque and unwelcoming. Um, mm-hmm. And in that regard, it, I think we came to the conclusion at the end of the last episode that it was just not really a book where we were the necessarily the intended audience. We were already well familiar with the genre. We were already well familiar with a lot of the aspects of it. And we didn't kind of need a gateway to get into it. But for those that were very much in the mindset of the character, were very much in the mindset of Corfor about some of the problems with science fiction, um, it is world-opening for them. And it needs to be credited in that regard. I mean, I read... I'd read 600 reviews, but I skimmed quite a few, and it was amazing to see how many people were truly open now to a genre in a way they hadn't been before, just because of some of the problems that she, that Aquafor has been pointing out. Yeah, and I mean, we as, like, three white people, like, we see ourselves (laughs) represented in these genres Mm -hmm. um, in ways that um, various minorities just don't. And so I think I think you're right, Spencer. Is that like this? This was obviously something like Benti was obviously a very powerful narrative for a lot of people who have historically found themselves marginalized, particularly in the genre of science fiction and fantasy. Mm-hmm. I mean, personally, I don't think I've got the hair to pull off. What is it, Lance the Brave? But yeah, I, I, I felt a commonality with him as he was being thrown off that cliff. <laughs> and I think the uh, other thing that, again, like as I think about her work. If you look at this as some like a reading that she does to introduce her books mm-hmm. or that somebody does and then like the reader looks up and says what the magical Negro says at the end, I think it again sets a very different tone. And so if it's instead of just sort of reading it through where it's preachy and kind of breaking the fourth wall but as somebody doing more of a performance and her defending her work again it has a different tone and so with the right audience i think it takes the right tone and then even like the three of us which may not be the exact intended audience but put into the perspective of she continually needs to defend her work and this is sort of where it is again it takes a different tone and so Yes, reading it falls a little flat, but it's something that makes sense to have here. Right. Yeah, I think so. It also like reaches out as a kind of introduction to other stories as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know you were talking about um, BJ that 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 other stories kind of have this breaking of the fourth wall coming out of them that maybe doesn't hit with you. But I think particularly for this kind of introductory story, reaching out to those other stories in this way. I didn't particularly like it, but I don't find it offensive. Yeah, I, I agree with what you guys are saying about how um, this story in particular, I would love to see a live reading of this, because this is a story that could be real fun to work the crowd with. Play off how they're reacting, play off paper tones, emphasize certain words or styles of presentation. It is a good spoken word story, and I 
feel like that works well as the open story of a book to introduce the themes that she's going for. Um, Sarah, do you know a little bit more about her as an author? Because I, you know, I looked a little bit, but uh, again, you know, something that we mentioned with Binti is that as a more theater performance, that I think that it would be a very interesting style. And if that's mm -hmm. some of the style that she has, because even the short stories that we that we're going to continue discussing, I think are more like I, I don't have the words, but sort of more like a play. Um, I would say, I mean, I think that that is a, a stylistic thing that you can track, that you can track through a lot of her works that, you know, one of the things in terms of not necessarily the kind of play like aspect of her writing, but one of the things that strikes me in terms of um, the self-awareness of her project and kind of this breaking of the fourth wall, like she has a PhD in like literature, mm -hmm. um, which sometimes <laughs> makes you a little more self-aware in your writing, let's say, in ways that are not always super effective. Like it speaking as someone who may at some point have a degree um you will come on in like going a couple on. weeks it, it becomes it becomes really difficult for me anyway um if i am attempting to write fiction to not kind of theorize as i am writing the fiction um and so i don't know that that is part of what is going on here but it reads to me as as something that might continue to bubble up okay uh, I don't know about you all, but we, just spent, we spent 22 minutes on a four-page story. I think we got to move on to Cabo Cabo. <laughs> Let's move on. Cabo uh, okay. Cabo is an interesting story. I did like it. Uh, I actually really got into the mindset of the main character at being as just goddamn frustrated as she is at times with everybody that she's being stuck in this cab with. Yeah. Uh, where th this, this thing is a magical school bus from hell in many aspects, though it does end well. Yeah. I there So the story is... Um, I, you know, the plot's fairly straightforward. Basically, um, Ngozi is uh, the main character. She's a lawyer in the U.S. in Chicago, and she's flying back uh, to uh, Africa for her uh, sister's wedding. Um, and she's her, late. She, and she's late. So, so this whole, like, first... I would say sort of chapter or, or uh, act makes me really uncomfortable because <laughs> you travel a lot. I mean, I, I guess I travel a reasonable amount and um, the amount of planning that go that I have sort of go into it. And it's like, she has a cell phone, but she didn't call a cab beforehand and just sort of walks out of her building and expects their cab to be there. And I'm just like, Oh my God, like, I don't know what's going on. This is super uncomfortable. Like, uh, people do live their lives like this, BJ. Oh, I, I don't mean, like she, it. <laughs> I mean, she's also like, take, trying to get a cab to O'Hare with like, doesn't she say she has like 45 minutes before her flight, like takes off before she's out of the door. It, I don't even know you can do that like anymore. That. Um, I do think it's also important to point out, um, and this might explain some of the the both lateness, lack of planning, and continual um, delaying that she is doing at the very beginning of this story, is that her, her sister is getting married in Nigeria, and she is, like, not happy oh, with this no. wedding. 
Yeah, uh, she is. Uh, un- well, she seems cont- content enough, or at least not opposed enough, necessarily to making the trip. She's really opposed to like who her sister is marrying. And there's an introduction to here in this story we see in several others of where um, there's, I mean, there, there's definitely a love and fascination with various aspects of um, Nigerian culture and various aspects of Nigerian religious beliefs. There is also a very heavy frustration with a lot of Nigerian machismo or a lot of Nigerian, uh, Nigerian sexism. That's being heavily called out in several of the characters, including in who her sister is marrying, who the uh, main character could not be more frustrated with. Yeah. Um, and so basically this uh, taxi pulls up um, and she's like, I'm not go." Um, and she eventually gets in. Well, I guess oh. we'll uh, come back to different parts, but she basically eventually gets in and goes through this uh hair-raising journey to try and get to O'Hare and get to her flight on time. Um, And basically through a series of uh, unfortunate events, she basically finds herself at O'Hare without her phone or her credit cards um, and is like, I I don't know what I'm going to do. And the cab driver who's sort of a little mysterious uh it's like you know don't worry um you know it's my job to get you there Uh, i think it's also worth spending a little bit of time talking about like what this cab actually looks like um because certainly it's a it's a kabu kabu and so at the very beginning of the story i just want to go back just a little bit um she is looking for this cab she or for a cab she cannot find a cab and um she then sees that sees a cab that is traveling too fast, buoyed along by a cushion of heavy bass music. Um, she yeah. is like already looking at this thing, like I think I've really fucked up here. And so she's got this. The cab had um, the sleek but stunned look of a hybrid vehicle, might be a Toyota or Honda. In the darkness, she couldn't see the the logo. The car was weirdly striped green and white and lizard-like. Even from a distance, she could see that the exterior was pocked with way too many dents and scuffs, like an old boxer past his prime. And so there's no cab number, um, and there is an inscription on the side of the vehicle that says, two footsteps do not make a path. So we are not in the realm of like actual taxis here. Yeah. yeah. If, if any of us were confronted with a similar situation, would you have gotten in the cab in the first place? Or would you have just let that one go by? Well, she tried to for a minute. She, yeah. She she, was... she she tells to herself, I'm not getting in it, and then gets in it. She clearly has decided that she's out of options at this point, I guess. Yeah, I was, I was guessing yeah, I was going to yeah. bring this up, and I was sort of curious if you guys wanted to delve into stuff now or, or sort of go back to it. But yeah, that's one of the frustrations that I think I have with her as an author and Again, I think that it might be some of this self-introspection stuff where it's like, I'm definitely not going to do X. And this comes up a bunch in the story. And then half a paragraph later, it's like, all right, well, I'm going to do that. Well, it seems like for me, that really plays into the kind of dreamlike inevitability of this story. Okay. Um, Where... I I mean, the whole thing feels very dreamlike to me. And it's this sort of like, I go through dreams all the time where I'm like, my rational self is absolutely not going to walk down the hallway when I think that I might not have clothes on by the end of this time because I know that I'm in a dream. Mm -hmm. But somehow I end up there anyway. Um, 
And so that's kind of what this feels like to me, where she is trying to logic herself out of this, but the the logic of this story and the logic of this space are just not going to allow for that. Yeah, a, a lesser version of this story could easily have had her been having a dream on the plane as she's flying to Nigeria and wakes up when she gets there. But it, <laughs> but it definitely has many of those aspects and tones without having that unnecessary trick at the end. Um, of where, as, as you said, there are many times of where if I had been presumably stuck in a situation dealing with um, sexist asshole cab drivers, dealing with seemingly suave vampires that suck my emotions, dealing with animated... I'm not even sure how to describe the kind of goddess that she runs into one point that, resemb- that seems to resemble an animated roller at a, at a, at a uh, car wash. Um, what was the third person? It was a, a, butcher, a, a guy described as the butcher who was just head to tail covered in blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there are many aspects of this of where I would have hoped that I would just have pieced out, run into the street, and called an Uber. Um, but if I assuming I had a cell phone to call it with. But she is A, seemingly just compelled. B, desperate. She's, I can't miss this wedding. And C, she's quite literally trapped throughout most of this. The car is not literally locked from the inside, but the door seemingly only opens with a magic touch. Yeah. So there, there, there are many both physical, emotional, and dreamlike barriers that prevent her from exiting the story until it is accomplished, until she has reached her, de- her destination, that her cab driver has now committed himself to bring her to. So I guess other than uh, being necessary for some parts of the story, um, like the vampire that gets picked up that steals her... Uh, cell phone and credit cards and the butcher that you know is covered in in blood and it's just like well don't ask questions and then the car wash spirit that again um i i think maybe was there to introduce her to the spirit world i guess like i didn't see the point of the characters in this story um so these are all like West African folkloric people and and part of cosmo like part of Nigerian and West African cosmology. Yeah, these are all like actual things. That that's that's my that was my feeling, and I Mm -hmm. was like, I'm gonna ask Sarah because I'm almost sure that she's gonna have this answer. So yeah, and I don't I don't have like a I I I have no deep knowledge about any of it um, necessarily, but um, like certainly. There are like a variety of different re- regions um, in Africa, including West Africa and um, including specifically Nigeria that have tales about kind of vampiric people. Um, they frequently get kind of written onto like ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't I don't know about the butcher specifically, but I do like the doom that comes from the car wash is an actual thing and like that, um, in various sort of like festival, like traditional festivals, they, um, people will dress up as the doom and like that is meant to be an actual spirit coming. Um, gotcha. With like the brightly colored coming fringes. Coming to life and coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I guess I'm somewhat familiar. Like I've seen some uh, videos and things like that of, of festivals where people have that, uh, garb that has you know brightly colored fringes that that spin around as right they dance. so okay so this this makes a lot more sense as to why these characters were included so this is sort of like a 
a bridge to maybe more Nigerian characters and culture as she's being taken on this journey. Yeah, and so what I what I also think is interesting about it, we talked a little bit um, last week about, like very briefly about magical realism because I told you that it was not magical realism, <laughs> what was going on in that story. Um, but I think that this is interesting because like actual magical realism relies on happening in places of kind of oppression and disaffection mm-hmm. um, because, you know, all of these magical things that happen around it are really nothing in comparison to the weirdness of like dictatorial regimes or like whatever. Um, so that is something that kind of allows a space for magical realism to happen. What's interesting to me here is that like when she gets to Nigeria and starts kind of talking about what has happened to her, nobody in Nigeria questions any of it, but she as like someone living in Chicago and beginning to experience this whole weird trip that she's on in Chicago is like freaked out of her mind. Were they suggesting at the end that everyone who had come to the wedding seemingly from far away arrived by means of the same experience? Because they, she talks about it, you know, it's just countless kabu kabus that all pull up at the same moment at the same time and drop everybody off confused. That's what it sounded like. That's what it read as to me. So this is a shared experience of everyone coming home essentially. And it, yeah. it's interesting in terms of how they describe it as well, of where they kind of integrally tie it into the immigrant experience, of where each of these characters that she sees very distinctly in Chicago, she's still in Chicago when she's on this kind of spirit journey before she goes on her own version of the river Styx, traveling through various other spirits to arrive where she needs to go. But the three people we talked about are very much ingrained in Chicago. The character just kind of shrugs and says, hey, they moved here, they got jobs. You know, I pick, I pick anybody up that has to go about their day. It's the various aspects of Nigerian culture have accompanied them across the water and are still functioning and still ingrained and are still in the lifeline of the world, even if it's something that she's chosen to separate herself from. And so she has to kind of link herself to these and tie into these as she then goes on this journey back to Nigeria, back to this wedding. So it, it felt like it was kind of tying into the, um, the immigrant experience or even in her case, the, the uh, second generation experience of connecting back to your culture. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that that's absolutely true. I think what what I read here, and we get not in this sort of like very literalized journey um, in this cab, taking on all of these kind of <laughs> Nigerian cultural symbols and um, trying to integrate them in some way and going through this sort of liminal period of like, where are we and what are we doing? But in other stories... So, so that, that idea, and I think this story really literalizes the idea of the difficulty um, and the real requirement for transformation of a sort of diasporic return mm-hmm. um, that we see happen in other stories, but not like this. Um, but I think it's setting, up, setting us up for the idea that the process, um, the sort of emotional and even physical toll of return is actually this difficult. It, it's her own odyssey. There, there are various comparisons here to Odysseus having to pass on his various journeys to make it on his way back home. And in her case, she is similarly tasked to um, endure to return back to her, her community. I, I have to ask, a lot of these stories are set around Chicago or making reference to Chicago. Is she from Chicago? Um, so she got her... Let me remember where she got her degree. I think that she lives in Chicago now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she got her degree at University of Illinois. Yeah, I think it was University of Illinois, she... Chicago. 
Um, yeah, and she so she teaches creative writing at Chicago State. Yeah, and she yes. she uh, went to high school in Illinois. So yeah, it looks like there definitely feels like a lot of her being put in the story in terms of her own experience, which yeah leads me to wonder how many of these stories are focused around very unpleasant um, husbands or very very unpleasant um, characters from back, male characters from back in Nigeria. Whether she has any similar tie there or whether she's just offering a commentary on as much as she enjoys the culture as much as she enjoys the community that there are rightfully some issues that need to be brought up and addressed well yeah i think that's true i don't know about her like personal relationships or anything like that but i mean i think um i think that given given the sort of scope and themes of her all of her works that that is obviously something that she is interested um that she is interested in pushing back on well, uh, so she gets to the wedding. She gets to the wedding. <laughs> uh, I said arriving at the same time, seemingly as everybody else, a day early and all equally confused. And, and as you said, it's it, it's stark to me, and I'm curious what um, the interpretation of it is. Is just how much everybody else just that's local just kind of shrugs and goes, "No, of course." Is it because they don't have to endure that kind of same journey to come home? They're just still steeped in the same culture, and there's no transition or odyssey that is expected of them as part of this. I would argue that that's certainly that that's certainly part of it. I would also go back to the idea that like one of the so I, I think that that is like the ultimate point. I think the kind of literal explanation in this story is also that like the hallmark of magical realism is that it doesn't seem magical to people living it. <laughs> to them, it is just the norm. Why would they make any comment on it? Yeah, um, but I also think that they they recognize that to two people from Nigeria who have moved to, to America, like they have lost that sense um, of the kind of magical in, in the everyday. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Should we move? Oh, go ahead. Oh, Jim, I was going to say, before we, we move on, I feel like we sort of glossed over uh, a couple of points that I wanted to touch on. Um, sure. One, which was a little bit minor, which was the spiritual nexus that they passed through and the doom sound that sort of accompanied i would say sort of shifts that the cab made yeah i wasn't sure what that was they made a point of doing that like three times though yeah and i guess sort of in my mind this was sort of getting her closer to the spiritual world or nexus that allowed them to travel um and then i sort of wonder if some of the um descriptors there that they were sort of going through in this uh i would get almost port of entry were other things that that are more cultural touchstones that i guess i'm not familiar with um and then the second thing that i wanted to bring up was this is the first story that uh fella kuti um i think is the pronunciation um is referenced and with shuffern and schmeilen um and this is a theme uh, and a couple of her other stories. And so I just wanted to bring up that, you know, he was a, a fairly prominent human rights activist in uh, Nigeria and played a fairly significant role in some of the politics and changes that had gone on, um, gone on there in the 70s and 80s. Is he still around? Is he still producing? Uh, no, or... he, he uh, died in 97 under questionable circumstances. Um, There was some reference to um, 
basically AIDS or HIV complications, um, but apparently that's very questionable. She, she describes in the story of being a rebel musician. BJ, I think you were telling me that that is quite literally true in terms of the, how the Nigerian government viewed him. They yeah. took active pains to silence him for uh, what he was speaking about. Yes, um, and so that was sort of one of the uh, interesting rabbit holes that I that I went down a little bit. And so one of his other pieces, Zombie, which we'll get to in uh, Spider the Artist, was one of the two pieces that, of his that I that I listened to. And I guess again, sort of unexpected for me was the length of these uh, pieces of music. I believe Shuffern and Schmeilin was like twenty five minutes long. Um, Good God, how long is Bohemian Rhapsody? And they couldn't even play that on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and, uh, I believe zombies is like, uh, 15 minutes or so. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think that they're very interesting pieces of music. And I guess given her descriptions, I expected a little bit more in the way of, uh, sort of incendiary lyrics and especially given the history about him that I read, but, um, it's a much more instrumental piece. Um, and then the lyrics are, um, I think embedded in the history and the time and, um, his activism rather than being a little bit more uh, incendiary themselves. So was he part of like an, a, a, a larger group of activists that was working kind of in conjunction with each other or was he kind of doing his own social commentary more on his own? Um, I think it was part of a larger activist movement. Um, so his mother was a feminist activist and an anti-colonialist um and um his father was a minister and uh the first president of the teachers union in nigeria so i'm guessing that his family and um him as he was being brought up was very much part of a um an activist group and culture well in, ter- in terms of your first question pj about that uh, journey on, into the spirit world of where she's very much obviously missed her flight she has no means of getting a new flight after they've gone through picking up two other passengers as part of the journey he essentially offers her a means to get where she needs to go and takes her what he just kind of describes as time travel as they pass into the spirit world on a kind of a highway of various spirits are constantly in motion to slip in slip out the same way he's been ruggedly frantically driving through the traffic before to arrive for a day early for a destination. Um, in terms of what we get out of this, I, I, it, it, for me, I just kind of interpret it in the same way as a much more stark depiction of the same kind of journey through cultural themes to arrive back home again. Um, was there anything else anybody else drew out of it besides that? Well, I mean, it actually, you know, thinking about, it struck me as kind of like a very literal and not of this earth, but really as a masquerade ceremony, hmm. um, which are are very popular, um, well, in a lot of different cultures, but they are in West Africa and in Nigeria as well. Um, and they are, you know, both entertainment, but they are also frequently like religious ceremonies as well. Um, and they function... In, in some instances, they fu- function um, a little bit like Carnival as well. Um, and so this idea of having a very liminal 
period where like the rules are disbanded, where we have kind of mortals and gods and ancestors potentially mingling in the same realm because the the rules um, the rules governing like who stays where have broken down to some degree. Um, and the fact that you might come out of that on the other end transformed, um, like that, that seems to be at play for me here. Mm-hmm. I, I think that what you said is very much typified by this uh, sentence that apparently a lot of people have highlighted. Um, <laughs> Thank the you, joys Kindle. of Kindle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is the essence of all things to move and change and keep going forward and backward and around, even spirits and the dead. And so I, I think that was sort of the transition that they're getting to, maybe a larger acceptance of Nigerian culture and beliefs and she needs to undergo this cultural journey if she's going to go back and be there for her sister and take part in this marriage and ceremony that is alien to her well (laughs) yeah yeah no I think I mean I think that's fair I'm trying to remember like she's still not super in on the marriage at the end of it though oh no god we never meet the guy and she's never really changed any of her views I mean yeah she's arrived at her destination and she just kind of looks back whimsically and when she's thinking about the cabbie but there's no stated you know character arc that she undergoes here it's more the, the experience of it rather than any stated resolution that happens at the end yeah and and I guess I think this is a story where we don't get that stated resolution, but you might be able to see where it's going. And I guess that's sort of what I took away from this uh, Nexus port of entry and her sort of discomfort, but accepting of the things that have happened to her. I I wouldn't even necessarily say there's anything that she has to change as a result of this or anything, any, um, character growth that necessarily results. This is just part of the experience of going home that she probably has to go through effectively every time. Um, it's more of a, just a repeated journey than uh, necessarily um, her hero's journey, I suppose. Um, I guess the last thing that I wanted you, Sarah, to comment on was, um, and I, I am singling you out because of your gender. Um, <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, and this will come up in, in Spider the Artist, but there's very, very heavy sexism that comes through. And I think Spencer mentioned this earlier. And so I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on it because, well, because you're female. Um, <laughs> not to token you there. <laughs> I mean, not to token you there, but I guess I I read this and I don't have the uh, what i would say is the the perspective to to really talk about it but the cab driver really has these sort of to me uncomfortable like igbo girl with no ass and it's just like well she's a 30 something year old lawyer and she takes umbrage to it and he sort of just keeps throwing in that she's a girl no i guess you're a woman because like you made that stink and like fine i'll go along with it and it sort of comes up sort of continually in his interaction with her. Yeah. So what do you want me to comment on? Uh, like this, this reads right. Okay. I, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it is, so it, it reads right. It is, um, 
it, it might be read as overplayed to some extent, but I think that, you know, one of the things that this is doing um, is thinking, and we've, we've touched on this a little bit before, but of course it's also thinking through, like, different cultural norms in gender relations, right? Um, and this, both in terms of um, Okorafor's other writing about gender relations in Nigeria, it reads as consistent with that, mm-hmm. um, but it also reads consistent with um, some of my experience in living in West Africa, Um but it's also not like that far out of the norm of like my everyday experience either. It's one thing that she did very well in terms of just making me very, very uncomfortable for the main character. Because a lot of the people that she confronts have an element of oppression over her. The cab driver's constantly belittling her. He's constantly barely even toler- barely even going along with what with them when she calls him to the carpet about things. First person she encounters is downright sexually intimidating. And that's what his role mm-hmm. of his character is. He is a vampire in the classic Victorian kind of, well, I say classic Victorian, but there's a lot of common themes attached with that too, I, I, I guess in the Nigerian depiction as well. Yeah. Um, this is a key thing that's being hit over and over again about how she is being, it seems like the, uh, the threat upon her has an element of sexism too, in terms of what she's having to confront as part of this journey. And I thought the author did a very good job of making me feel very, uncomfortable with her as she's going through all of this. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it, it is certainly meant to feel you make you feel uncomfortable like in that specific way. Yeah. Um, the idea of her experience as a woman in this situation um, has made her has made this experience for her different and very gendered mm-hmm. in, in gendered ways, I guess, um, than it would be if she were a man going through the same experience. Um, but yeah, I think so within, within the logic of the story, it makes sense. Within the logic of Okorafor's body of work, it makes sense. Um, and like I was saying, BJ, I think, yeah, I think that this tracks with like a not out of the bounds understanding of the like just constant undercutting, particularly in situations like this. Um, I don't know that I, I certainly experience on a day to day basis. That, that that's, the, that's the perspective that I wanted. Um, and uh, I, I guess it's sort of the this seems so foreign to me. And so like that this is a somewhat normal interaction, just like reading it makes me like, how is this like something that actually happens? And so to, to, and it's like, I intellectually understand that, that, that is something that happens, but it's so foreign to me that I don't know how to address it in terms of like, this is a normal experience. This is like, out of the norm like where is this and how should i read this well it feels like it should be ridiculous right it feels like this is something that we are not meant to believe um no i would i would say that this is like fairly standard yeah i'll say as well i very much shared bj's reaction there's just a palpable sense of an uncomfortable confusion attached to it what am i supposed to take out of this is this being the norm or not um should we um should we go on to spite of the artist which i'd say is probably my favorite one of the stories that we read Oh, Spencer, I'm so glad it's my favorite story, too. I quite enjoyed this one. Again, other than the last <laughs> paragraph, like how we talked about. but the- I know, yeah. Maybe we could do the, like, what is the type of art where you start sort of, like, just cutting out paragraphs of things um, <laughs> uh, and making your own thing out of them? Maybe we can just start doing, like, the last paragraph out of... 
I call, I call it death of the artist of where w- <laughs> once your art has been put out there, the readers, get, the readers and appreciators can do with it as they wish in terms of how they, how they experience it. Yeah. But this, this artist is asserting herself. <laughs> Very much so. Uh, I, I think BJ, we need to kind of start with Fela Kuti because the author does. So what can you tell us about the song zombie? Cause that very much is what the story begins with and kind of is what's the overarching theme of it. Yeah. And, and sort of what it's about. So, um, the song is Zombie by Felakuti, and it was his critique of uh, the Nigerian military. And so it's basically, I, I think it sort of goes along with the, they're just following orders, um, and that sort of whole, you know, they're zombies, and they don't think for themselves, and they just sort of act a very much a protest to that. Was this back, back during the body was work in like the 60s and 70s kind of thing? Uh, yeah, so this is 1977. Okay. Uh, or 1976. One Wikipedia page said one thing and then <laughs> one said the other. All right. Um, and yeah, so this was released in Nigeria and the UK in 1976. And this is a heavy critique. The album is a heavy critique of the Nigerian government. Yeah, and apparently this... Um, is the song, or this is the album that um, atta- was attacking the Nigerian sh- soldiers, and this is what prompted the um, attack on his commune that he established, where the soldiers came and raised the compound. Um, he was beaten, his mother was thrown from a window, um and the uh and she eventually died from the industry for from her injuries basically the entire compound was raised instruments destroyed and and so you know if basically the head uh of these soldiers hadn't basically prevented his being beaten to death like he would have been beaten to death here um, and my presumption is so he wasn't made into a martyr. And that's basically the only reason that he wasn't killed in this raid. I need to read more about this, about the political history of Nigeria. This is a entirely a gap in my knowledge that I'm not pretty eager to read about. Um, but the story itself opens with a very eye-grabbing line of, my husband used to beat me, which I, I, was, I was flipping through the stories in no apparent order, but I got to that one's like, okay, well, I'm reading from here. This has drawn my attention. Um, it continues with a very sad story of a woman who is in a abusive, neglectful, very unpleasant relationship that has very little outlet for it. I mean, she doesn't know fully why her husband beats her, abuses her, whatever else. He's seemingly part of a resistance movement that doesn't really necessarily do much, that is dealing with a government that is outright hostile to the interests of the people and focused almost entirely with everything built around maintaining the flood of oil outside the country, with everything else just reduced to secondary or tertiary importance. But she's dealing with this kind of world of where whatever he has, he's taking out on her, and she has no real means to escape by that, other than her own memories of music. Until one day, she ventures outside to play in the backyard, and these so-called zombies come calling. Yeah, and so I would say the... Uh, these spider robots that uh, she refers to as zombies, I think are sort of supposed to be a little bit of a stand-in of the marauding 
vaguely governmental soldiers in Nigeria who, you know, maybe more of like a warlord uh, enforcing type thing that that are ensuring oil production. I guess there, sort of that was my reading of it. And given yeah. her putting forth uh, Zombie by Felakuti as sort of the soundtrack to go along with this story. Yeah, and they read as a as um, an interesting and sort of weird in between between sort of um, international oil companies and their interests and the Nigerian government's interests um, as well. And so they function in this kind of in between space that is like really quite tricky, as really as really do these communities um, themselves. Yeah, and I uh, so. The one thing that I want to throw in is I think that this sort of futurism with mega corporations is a touchstone of sci-fi literature, which I don't think is common enough to become a trope, but it is like a uh, subgenre, at least I would say, of uh, capitalist futurism. I'd say it's almost like a necessary precursor or a necessary background of pretty much all cyberpunk. So I, I, if it isn't a genre in its own right, it is a key aspect of the setting of countless science fiction works. Mm-hmm. And this this is very much a science fiction work in its own right, in that it is set in a future that is still very similar to our own, but with other, certain aspects changed, and providing direct commentary on a situation that's existing in the present. And, and I will say that in, in Okorafor's author's notes at the back of this book, um, she does credit Spider the Artist as the first story that she's written that she thinks she could like legitimately call science fiction. Mm-hmm. And, and one thing she does very well here is just the many levels of oppression that the main character is dealing with. I mean, there is yeah. the description of the, distant, of the distant government that's never been described as positive terms, and it's various agents in the forms of these. If we view the zombies as either their agents or agents of the actual corporations, uh, are the zombies separate in your guys' mind from these kind of kill squads, kill and go teams that are being described out of there as well, or are they just an additional manifestation of the of just this very much oppressive 1984 state that she's living and existing in? I read it as the same. They're sort of all in the same these like uh, weird spider robots, but basically not reported on because they kill everybody, and so it it's sort of like we know that something happens and something shows up and people die but we're just going to call them like murder squads hit squads or whatever and there are things that are known a little bit more for when they're trying to steal when people are trying to steal oil from the pipeline and so there's a little bit more information there because some people escape she's dealing with suppressive government they're literally living among the pipelines that they're not allowed to touch so essentially their home is a minefield where they venture too far outside of their own homes they're subject to kill media kill orders so that's and no one in these communities has oil or fuel themselves um, but these pipelines run through just run rampant through them yeah I, i think this is very much the a commentary on many countries in in that area of the world where you know there are these incredibly precious resources but the general populace basically suffers because that's part of the natural resources of the country rather than benefits from it right and and there's no support inside the community itself i mean everybody's joined the kind of niger delta people's movement and is vaguely resisting but she has no support from her family. She has no seemingly support network from any neighbors or anything else. Everyone is just kind of existing in their own mutual state of oppression. And 
it's no one's really describing it as being anything but the norm. It's just so much part of the background now that everyone's just kind of shrugging and going along with their lives. It, it reminds me in some ways, um, I forget the name of the character, but uh, when Binti's talking about her brother and all the anger that's tied up into it, but all the impotence of it as a result, in terms of um, how she's describing some of the aspects of the, the people's movement, while at the same time acknowledging that their motivations and their hatreds and their anger are perfectly justified, just not how they go about expressing it or fixing the problem. But I'm not sure if anything else could really be done here. This is painting a very, this is painting a very negative portrait of the world that she's living in, and very little hope being attached to it until she has her music and is able to have this privacy with her music, and has an earnest listener in the form of this zombie that comes calling to uh, listen in each evening as she plays. Yeah, and so I think you you mentioned it, Spencer, but I think it's worth dwelling on a little bit um, the kind of danger at the beginning of this situation um, as it develops. Mm-hmm. The the background of all of this is that, of course, in an attempt to um, protect the pipelines from anyone coming in to steal oil or fuel from them, is that sort of any touch on the pipeline and any any touch on the pipeline, any breach in the pipeline, sends these squads of sort of spider robots coming to both repair it, but also to kill whoever is responsible for it. Um, and so the the fear that these spiders invoke, um, even just the the glimpse of one scuttling along the pipeline is is very real um, and something that that people who live along the pipelines deal with every day. And so the idea that she is going out near the pipelines and she's lost in her music and all of a sudden there is this spider robot there, like just looking at her, um, is a real mo- moment of of fear and danger. Yeah, she, she describes like it's two children. She thinks she tells a story about two children playing with a ball. And just the fact that their ball touched it and they went to go after it resulted in one kid dying and the other one being permanently crippled. I mean, this is a, mm-hmm. it, it's, you can't even call it justice, but if you were to, you described it as being utterly unequivocal, utterly remorseless and absolute. Um, this is a world of where the law is simply your death or not. You ex- you, your continued existence is basically on our, on our ability to ignore you. Um, and here she is looking eye to eye with the molten mercury blue globes of a zombie staring at her. Yeah, but, you know, seemingly she figures out after that sort of first flush of that with not any real threat, with actual real interest. Yeah, that she, she realized that um, it was seemingly drawn by her playing and when it's tapping back on uh, her guitar, or tapping back on the pipe, it's trying to encourage her to keep going. And from here on out, we get a very... I described it openly as heartwarming relationship that starts to develop between these two is he very much is her outlet, her lifeline to some degree of happiness in an otherwise hostile world. Uh, mm-hmm. And even starts to um, play back to her with the sound that it's only described in, emo- in, in emotive words in terms of how much it means to her to hear the music coming from it. Whereas each of the songs that she describes, that she plays is pretty much named whatever else, but whatever music it returns, almost like transcends a word that she's able to describe it in terms of how, how much it means to her. Yeah, and it, it becomes the sort of idea that when he will, that he, the spider will play um, her own songs back to her, mm-hmm. uh, but then also begins to essentially compose on its own. Yeah, and that, I, I don't know, I think it's an interesting piece that this has because this is very much a exposure of the uncultured to culture and a renaissance of 
something and I think it's interesting that she uses that trope in her writing be but instead of like having like an uncultured other group it's an AI Mm -hmm. and so it's a little bit more devoid of or divorced from those other overtones an AI, which is very, as you as you said, is very much a stand-in, seemingly for uh, the Nigerian military. And does that basically put her, the main character, in the role of a fella here in terms of playing music that essentially is, I don't necessarily, I wouldn't say it's in her case designed to, but kind of ultimately leads to a bit of a revolution by this uh, military force. I think the parallels are reasonable there, but. It's a stretch. Of an, yeah, a little bit of a stretch. and I'll, I mean, also, because they, they're sort of very opposite responses. And so maybe it's like, this is what would have been really nice to happen, is that, you know, <laughs> this, you know, bonding o- over cultural music would have netted a more positive outcome rather than seeing it as something inflammatory. Mm. But, I, I, again, I, I feel like that's... Um, that's sort of the last paragraph in a, an assigned essay on on this <laughs> short story. Fine, fine. So we go from this, as you said, Spencer, very heartwarming place of um, a kind of mutual learning. They seem to very much enjoy each other's company. Um, that doesn't last particularly long. No, yeah. It, it ends essentially with her husband coming outside to inform her that it's been a leak, a breakage in the pipe. Well, there's a couple, there's a moment that happens before, which is not very well, necessarily well explained, of where before things go straight up to hell, we hear off on the margins that they're going to hell elsewhere in ways that people can't fully explain. Of where, as she's been playing music to this thing, there's an element that despite that the various zombies are no longer being as controllable, or at least no longer being, no longer acting in a way that can be easily understood in that they've straight up just seemingly attacked the military uh, and eliminated a force that was seemingly associated with the government. And people are now speaking out that they're worried that the zombies are no longer operating under control or anything resembling their usual rules and parameters that they were uh, seemingly set to. Uh, and this provides a bit of a background to her husband then coming outside as she's playing. She, eagers, she eagerly tells the zombie, please don't kill him, just wait a minute. As her husband says, there's been a break in the pipe, there's no zombies to be found everyone's going there to get as much fuel as they possibly can. And then we get the first inclination that something's about to go horribly wrong uh, for the what remains of the community that her main, the main character is in. As her zombie, I don't know if he's warning her about what's going to happen in the future, but he makes the various little spark gestures, and then his eyes go red and he runs off with everybody else. Uh, and we cluster back as her community is having very much a party around this broken pipeline. It's seemingly something that they've never experienced before, they're actually free to enjoy the resources that are being piped out of the earth around them. They're able to harvest whatever they want. They're making this a full-on block party, um, which quickly turns into, I don't know, did you guys interpret this as being almost an orchestrated slaughter? Or is it just some delay in their actions just leads it to be far more bloody than it would have been otherwise? Um, I, I guess I, I interpreted more as like setting an example, like, you know, you guys thought that you finally got around the system. And so, you know, we'll wait a little while, you, you know, gather your people and then all hell's gonna make it a more powerful message as a result. 
I yeah, I think that's fair. I'm trying to remember my impression of it. I did not I did not read it that way when I first when I first read it. I read it as they had simply had a delayed reaction um in getting to this break mm-hmm. for whatever reason, um which I think I partially read also as, you know, you had these rumblings about like the spiders are gro- going going rogue. Right. And not really doing what they're supposed to do anyway. And so that kind of explained the delay away from me without it necessarily being intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess, you know, there's not, there's potentially not necessarily evidence no. of that because they do get there eventually, right? Um, I, so I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I think it's very much one of the two. I think the book almost seemingly ends favoring the idea that they're moving outside of their programming. Um, because, I mean, the book ends with a kind of... she She's the only... Let's finish up the plot. Uh, despite the zombies' attack, they use the oil itself to just incinerate the community almost entirely, leaving her as kind of the only survivor. Um, she's very much left alive because her zombie steps in to protect her with his own body. Um, and then the book seemingly ends with... Uh, I'm trying to pull it up because I don't actually remember what happens in the next part, but immediately after that occurs... Uh, basically she has a her baby growing inside of her and yeah as, as, as a result seemingly of uh, I don't know the, the magic or just the she credits the zombie with it um, as whatever he did as whatever he uh, brought to her was allow, was allowing her to overcome what was um, one of the things she thought was driving her husband's rela- her and her husband's relationship apart was um, her inability to uh, have a child I mean, that really is the end of the book. It ends really with a series of questions and with a paragraph that I'm, I know, BJ, you don't feel necessary, and I don't <laughs> necessarily know that I do either. Um, but the, the book really does end with just this, or um, the, the story really does end with this indication that Spider the artist, um, as well as this woman, have survived, and she has survived because of him. She has survived with, with her baby, um, and there's no real clear indication of what what is going to happen next because this was obviously a catastrophe um, and potentially world-changing. I mean, she talks about a continued relationship with the zombie itself where the zombie seemingly... this The last two paragraphs are seemingly set long in the future, maybe several years afterwards because um, that... Uh, well, no, actually, no, no, I was reading that wrong. He tells me it's a girl, and I and I we play for her every day. So I guess they're playing for, as she's still pregnant, playing through the womb. Mm-hmm. Um, so seemingly some time has passed. Uh, and then she just kind of broaches the idea that maybe, you know, we'll be able to prevent this all-out war from occurring just between the relationship we've established. And uh, otherwise, the Delta's going to be rolling with blood, and you should pray that the zombies never cross the sea itself. Which, again, I... Yeah, I've talked about how it, I kind of wish that last paragraph had been left out because it just makes the message very abundantly author speaking to you. Look look at what your corporations have done to our world. Pray that the, the same carnage you've inflicted on us never comes back to you. Um, which I, I get that message very much, but it just feels very author speaking to me about yeah. what I what I should have learned from this. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I certainly I certainly agree that it for for me could have cut off a couple of paragraphs sooner. I wonder too though. I mean, I agree with that. I wonder if part of our discomfort with this is with these types of kind of stepping out of the normal narrative role is 
both they did they certainly feel preachy but i also wonder if it's not something to do with how infrequently we encounter the second person in narratives hmm. um and the idea of being spoken to as a as a quote unquote you directly that is also i think for me at least uncomfortable as a reader um even as i acknowledge that that the content of these paragraphs and of some of the endings of these stories is preachy um i also think that it's a stylistic a stylistic discomfort as well um that may or i was gonna say i would have agreed with you a hundred percent um before i read the fifth season yeah that well that's fair that's fair. Uh, so, you know, we've talked about this book and it's a different author and about a third of the book is written in sort of a second person voice. And so had I not had that experience, I would have said, yep, 100%. It's super uncomfortable being talked to and basically being put in the book. And that uh, it is a different experience in that book. You know, it's a little bit different because it is... Um, sort of talking to you as one of the characters so it's not exactly the same but Mm -hmm. that use of second person or that the author sort of talking to the reader in some ways I think had I not had that experience I would have 100% agreed with you and I think that there still is part of that with um, these short stories For for me that's never read the fifth season or I think as far as I know any book of where it's been any way done in second person it is uncomfortable to me just because it's not how i experience the text it's not what i'm in any way used to about how i read through stories i to the degree i'm in i put myself in the story it's entirely through the other characters otherwise i have no role it really moves me into a very different medium than i come to expect when i'm experiencing the stories and so that kind of fugue may be part of my problem with it yeah i think and you know i think even BJ in the fifth season, it certainly took me a little while to get used to the second person as well. Um, but you have it so much more consistently and for such um, so much longer over the course of the narrative that you kind of get used to it. Or at least for me, I got used to it and figured out kind of what was going on. It also, like as you were saying, it was a little bit different in that it wasn't like personally... Um, interpolating or interrogating me as as reader instead of as character. So, I, I mean, I with those caveats, um, I agree with you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, do we want to move on to another story? Uh, I would just offer that this is definitely my favorite of the ones we've done so far and probably my favorite of the bunch. It really clicked with me well. Um, so, Sarah, th- thank you again for recommending this one in particular. You're welcome. I'm glad you enjoyed it, Spencer. <laughs> Uh, now, this one, I felt like this story was really, would really resonate with my dad, and BJ, you know why, uh, but uh, the connection on our list is The Ghastly Bird. Yeah. Yeah, uh, which is a very different story than all of the other stories that we read. This struck me as an interesting mix of, like, I don't know, Old Man in the Sea and an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge in terms of what it was going for. It is very much unique to itself. Yeah, um, and those are, I think those are two... <laughs> interesting stories to pull in conjunction if you're doing the movie pitch of the ghastly bird <laughs> just <laughs> well <laughs> i picture it's I, old man of the sea meets like what uh but I, I take your point like i think that's fair yeah sarah as you said it's a movie pitch that i probably wouldn't recommend making i feel like i would not be able to 
After I presented it in that particular way, I feel like the producer would just nod slightly and just press the button for security to remove me quickly. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's fair. I also... You would have to take a lot of liberties with this story to make it movie length as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- th- this would be like you know the little short film that they're pl- that they're that they're uh, playing on the Hallmark Channel or something in terms of uh, the nature of the presentation it has to do because <laughs> it, it would be done inside of five minutes. It could be a really dark version of one of the Pixar shorts that comes before all of their movies. Oh, oh yes, yes, it could. But God, you'd scar the children before you started with Finding Nemo. <laughs> Well, you know, you got to learn sometime. Well, I mean, I described it as scarring, but this is ultimately a story about wish fulfillment to a certain degree, and that he ends up accomplishing everything that he dreamed to and is escorted out of this life by the bird that embodies all of his desires in the world. So, so I feel like this could so be... So with that spoiler... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Everyone's read it! So I feel like this could be a super cool, like, short film that sort of does upends the Disney princess trope. The, the 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 new modern age of uh, when Bambi meets Godzilla kind of thing. Uh, sure, but it's just like you know befriending you know the 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 wildlife and you find you know this magical beast and then yeah. In, in reality, it's, it's your, really your, your, a harbinger of death. Yeah, yeah, your spirit guide to the other world. Well, now that we've you know gone to the ending, let's we'll start with the intro. <laughs> uh, this book is centered around a um, kind of resident uh, expert in birds from the uh, Indian subcontinent who has relocated to Mauritius. How do you pronounce the name of that damn country? I'm never sure how to pronounce this one. Mauritius? He's, well, is everyone content with me just saying, do we agree on a pronunciation before we go further? Sarah, do you have Yeah, a... I, I honestly don't know. Is it Mauritius? Sure. Mauri- Mauritius? I'm not sure. I mean, there is a Mauritania. Because I, a think, I think we want it to be Mauritania, yeah, the, the, and it's yeah, just not. Yeah, it's not, yeah. <laughs> That, that is another country, I believe. But yeah. it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a collection of islands that's, I believe, north of Madagascar. I think it's where it is. Mm-hmm. Where the Sounds dodo cool. was famously in residence. And is, for those that aren't familiar, dodo is kind of the first species of where we, as a world, were suddenly aware, oh, shit, we can actually kill these things off? Clearly, we'd caused the extinction of other species before. You know, many species died in the Roman arenas way back in the day. But with the dodo, it's the first time we ever actually documented in the processes and had the technology to publish it around the world that it had happened. So it's really marked as being the first example of an extinct species, because it's really the first one that was well-documented and scientifically written about as it was happening. Uh, This guy, however, is fully convinced that that is a myth, that the dodo is very much alive, that it was far too intelligent of a bird to be eradicated, and he has moved his entire life to this island to fulfill his dreams that have ended relationships, that have ended careers, that have... If he ever revealed them publicly, they'd even more uh, thoroughly exile him than he's already done himself. But it is his dream to prove that the dodo remains. Uh, And he has built a lot of himself into this in terms of making sure that that dream comes comes about. Yeah, and so in this story, we catch him on a a rare afternoon off. Yeah. He is enjoying his backyard estate, where it's pretty clearly framed that this guy has some measure of wealth and uh, servants, caretakers, grounds gardeners constantly at work this this is a i don't i don't know his, what, what relative wealth we're assigning to him but this is his his pleasure palace to a certain degree in terms of how it's being depicted as he's sitting in his backyard enjoying his day off i'm sort of imagining uh sort of marx brothers-esque 
you know, in the wild with the very typical sort of safari hat and uh, shorts and, and, you know, the whole getup. And... It definitely has a colonial edge to how this is being described in terms yeah. of the role that he's in. And how he has been able to be successful in his chosen profession as well. Mm-hmm. But he's there enjoying his day off, enjoying all the various scents, the various smells, the various sights. Um, and uh, as he's doing this, uh, commenting on all the wealth, all the costs of the various things, all the bird figures, all the various aspects of the world that he's inserted himself into, uh, a dodo, out of nowhere, jumps out of the bush and starts eating a fruit in front of it. Uh and he sort of runs after it and it's like, oh, I, like, I have to document this. I have to tell my girlfriend about this. I have to do something. But he's ex, entranced. Ex, ex-girlfriend. Ex-girlfriend. Um, uh, it, it, it's worth noting, the obsession that is being described with him and the dodo involves him even having a locked uh, full-size cabinet that is full of dodo plushies yeah, that he sleeps a with. A shrine it, that, it that a, he would never tell his girlfriend about because that's a little too weird. But apparently every night that she was not there, he curled up with his own little dodo plushie because of how much it means to him. Um, so th- this is very much wrapping up his life in terms of how much the dodo has meant to him in this story. And he freaks out. He's got to document this. This is everything he needs to be able to present to the world to fully encapsulate his fame and prove right every dream he's ever had. But the dodo jumps back in the bush and he has to go pee. Uh, so he goes back inside in seemingly unnecessarily detail, it's described the process of him peeing. Um, while he looks out the window, the dodo reemerges. Uh, he goes through the process that we've all done before of trying to pee while doing something else, I suppose, and uh, decides he's going to go back outside to be with the dodo, and goes on this paced walk where it's described he's expert at stalking birds, expert at getting close to them and not uh, turning to fright. But the dodo is just staring at him the same way it has before. It's looking him right in the eye. He's getting closer and closer to it without being any way opposed to him. He's thinking over and over his head he's getting closer to it. This is going to fill his every dream. This is every accomplishment he's ever gotten to. And um, as he gets closer to it, 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 at one point he even describes it as being his spirit guide, I think. Or uh, I'm sorry, I'm jumping to the end of the book here real quick. <laughs> Um, you jump around, but it's fine. Yeah, you know, I'm trying trying to repeat this on the fly from memory. Um, uh, basically, he's it, it's going to do it's going to make him. It's going to make who he is. It's going to be you know he's going to be in top scientific journals and get on the co- cover of Nat Geo and mm-hmm. and this is this is going to be the uh, ultimate point in his life, and I guess it is. Yeah, man. He even he describes it as he's getting closer to it. His health is seemingly collapsing. He's starting to wheeze. His heart is laboring. The world and the smells are becoming much more intense upon him. Um, as he reaches out to this thing and is touching it and petting it and then rolls on his side, it coos to him softly. He smiles and dies. And that's pretty much the story, really. I, do, do, do we leave out much in our description there? I'm pretty sure that's the plot. Okay, what 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 do we what do we what do we take out of this? I mean, I I very again I very had I had very strong old man of the sea and occurrence at Elk Creek Bridge feels upon this in terms of what the author appears appears to be depicting about this story and this journey the character is on. Yeah, I mean, I think I certainly think old man in the sea is like a 
um, an apt comparison to draw, although I think it is also apt in the way that this story kind of takes takes the narrative of Old Man and the Sea in this sort of quest and Locks it roundly. makes and yeah, and makes it ridiculous, right? Yeah. And it's like, okay, um, so we've got an old man, but instead of being the sort of like robust seafaring questing old man, um, it's a relatively minor ornithology expert mm-hmm. um, sitting in his garden rather than kind of like questing across the questing across the seas for this giant beast. Um, we also have the sort of like objectively ridiculous looking bird in the dodo <laughs> and um, what that comparison makes to uh, the fish. So I don't yeah, I think we have it is it is kind of turning that story on its head to some degree and uh, um, exposing the like, the 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 ridiculousness of that narrative to begin with um yeah by by placing it in this place with these with these characters and with this creature um we're undercutting it uh, so I, yeah bj go ahead i, I was gonna say, say a couple of things one i feel like this is a very different tone of story um than pretty much everything else that we've read by uh nettie okoro mm-hmm. like it's just a very mm-hmm different feel different voice different everything which i like mm-hmm. um in terms of just the breath of the author yeah um it, we said at the beginning this is very much different and i yeah bj very much agree this is but most of the other ones i can you know detect a common ley line between them this one is off on its own and i i i very much enjoyed it i agree with you sarah that it, it very much feels to be mocking a lot of the arrogance of those common tropes of just the you know, man against the world, conquering the natural world, getting getting and taking something from it, um, stories. Just even from the very beginning of where uh, he's very much described in colonial terms of him being imposed upon the landscape and, you know, using all of his money and resources to bring it to his will and ties into those, you know, conquering colonial mindsets, but then just subverts them in terms of who our main character is. He's an ornithologist who's kind of visually exiled himself because he has practically a fetish for dodos um i I, i've not read you know hemingway's notes as he was writing old man of the sea but i don't think he wrote in there that the old man had just a collection of little plush swordfish that he kept in his back room um but it's she very much is i feel mocking a lot of those classic tropes with respect to that about that this individual has imposed himself upon the landscape and is trying to take from it to a certain degree or get something out of that um in terms of resolution, that you know, his 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 thing that he wants to draw out of this world, this thing he wants to you know, con- bring out and conquer with, is a bird as just utterly ridiculous as the dodo that he's just built up into this world-changing device. And it is like very much presented throughout as a vanity project mm-hmm. for him as well. There is no sort of no hint of a redeeming. Um, a redeeming idea of like what what this discovery would do in the scientific community other than the fact that he would have been the one to find the dodo that everybody was gone like that that is the be all end all of of this quest it's not in furtherance of something else it's in furtherance of his ego and nothing more mm-hmm. yeah and i feel like that sort of casts a little bit of well-deserved dispersion on the like going out and it's like oh i'm gonna discover x because you know it's gonna make me famous and 
you know, the many uh, English and otherwise Eastern or uh, Western European uh, social elites that would sort of go on these journeys and and wander out and describe something and find something and that was sort of their way of sort of finding themselves after college and mm-hmm. you know spending some time doing it um, and how worthless those were as pursuits for pretty much a- as a whole it's, it's worth noting that our main character does not fit into the mold in some ways about that of where um, he's distinctly described as being I believe Indian right I mean uh, th- th- it talks about that uh, he uh, met his girlfriend in the, uh, when he was in India before relocating there do I have that right uh I must have missed that. Maybe. I remember that India came up, um, but I don't remember if it was... I don't remember if it was explicit that he was Indian, and I might have glossed over that because of the like strong colonialist tones going on. And that was, I, I, since we don't remember, I won't, we don't have to go into it, but I thought that was just an interesting subversion to itself, of where it's going through the colonialist tones, but it's not necessarily needing to steep itself in terms of the uh, stereotypical white white man character. I think when she, when, right. when she effectively killed off that character in the first story of uh, the Magical Negro, that ended their, that role in, in the novel from here on out. Explore the themes, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, so, Spencer, I wanted to bring up a term that that you might appreciate. The uh, dodo sort of reminded me of an Ardat Yakshi. Um, wow. Well, okay, you're, you're tying it something. It reminded me of the Ardat Yakshi is uh, Mass Effect. Thank the, you. Yes. Uh, that that preys on artists and <laughs> explorers and whatever else, and and sort of draws the life force from them. Nitching and call, yes. Uh, I have a hard time now seeing the dodo in that role, but that's what the author has given us here. Well, yes, but but, but yeah, in yeah. terms of like what happens to him and it's you know what he seeks and and the contribution that he seeks to have. Mm-hmm. Um, I am kind of amused that I did a Mass Effect deep cut that you completely missed, Spencer. It, I need to replay the, all the <laughs> games. I just don't have the hundred hours necessary to do so. No, oh, fair enough. All right. Well, I mean, it, I enjoyed this story. It is an odd little tale, but it is very unique for her. It is very much different in terms of style, but I liked it. Uh, it, it was, it, it was quirky and pleasant. It also, I really liked it too. It also felt like well placed within this collection. So mm-hmm. I know we only read a few stories from it, but it is kind of in the middle of the collection, and it feels like it feels like a pause. It feels like a little bit of a breath mm-hmm. before going back into um, the kind of more typical. A core four stories, and you know, I, I we've commented for the, the just me not, me not liking this aspect of her style, but I like that even though the themes are very obvious, it never comes across as really preachy. It's just telling a yeah. story, and it's counting on me to get it. Yeah. Uh, well, having finished this one up, shall we go on to I think what's our last one? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. I believe the last one we agreed upon was uh, the Baboon Wars, which I on Kindle. Let me scroll there and get there. Yep. <laughs> so, I this one was interesting to me. Um, it seemed like a sort of very fun young adult story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that's sort of more, again, a, a different pace, sort of a different genre and a different feel to it than uh, other short stories in this. And I think even very different than Binti as well. Cause this mm-hmm. to me was very much a, 
um, a younger audience and played well with that and kept with that theme. I, yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. And I like one of the Okorafor does do a lot of like young adult literature. Um, we this is the kind of one of the only examples of it we've encountered. But I think one of the things she does particularly well in this story that I really love is that she really keeps you in the mind and the decision-making processes of this very precocious child. Mm -hmm. And I guess Uh, it also doesn't seem like the child is way too far out of normal bounds. And mm -hmm. so it's not like this is the chosen child or this is... uh, you know, the best child of her generation and, and an outstanding in her family. It's just like, you know, a mm-hmm. reasonably normal child. And also that like you have that the, the a social dynamic within the friend group that undergoes sort of this very sort of weird interaction with these baboons that you get a little bit of the, their personality as well. And so all of the characters in this short story felt a lot more real mm-hmm. um, than at least I, I guess my impression of, of what we got from Binti. I think that, I think that's very fair. Yeah. I mean, we're not entirely certain where, where we are in this story um, to what extent it's sort of real world or not, but everybody feels very everyday, very normal, very kind of earthbound. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So these characters feel a lot more three-dimensional, even though I feel like this as a short story doesn't have as much time to paint the picture, but the picture that she paints in the amount of time, I feel like is reasonably deep and and I appreciate a lot. I will say that this is the first, um, this story is the first Akorafor that I had ever read. Really? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I say read, I mean um, LeVar Burton read it for me. (laughs) That's a special way to be introduced to an author right there. Um, yeah, which, yeah, which is its own, own experience. Um, so this story starts, we do have like a frame narrative going on here, um, because it starts not with the girl that we have been talking about up to this point, but it starts with a kind of first person narrative, um, of a sibling of the real main character of this. And is this a role? And his father, right? I think yeah, is it... the I in this story is male, right? Yeah. Is this our only story where it's being where the actual plot is being only described to our main character? Um, I think every other the story we've had is the main character is actually experiencing it firsthand, whereas this time it's just kind of just being recounted to him. But yeah, I, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't interpret yeah. the main character as a male. As male. Okay. Yeah, I, certainly in the stories that we, we read for today, I can't remember if in this collection there were other um, kind of frame and flashback narratives or not. I'm not sure. I agree with you. I think this is a very interesting way to present the story. Um, mm-hmm. But, and I guess this is sort of also maybe lends towards the, did it happen? You know, as the presumably slightly unreliable narrator is giving it. And so I think that couching it in the younger sister relaying it to an older brother and father is like a, you know, you went through this really cool adventure and and had all, well, cool. I I guess that's sort of my (laughs) uh, interpretation of like her recounting the story, but... 
Um, I guess I don't know what your guys' experience with baboons is and how they're close evil you've creatures. been to them. Um, but they're massive. They're massive yeah. and angry and 90% teeth. Yeah, so I guess I, I've probably been closer to baboons than many other people, and they are impressive creatures. Yeah, just re- they are really, really terrifying. Um, yeah. So we we start this story, though, the, the frame of this story with um, this girl, M.M., coming back into the kitchen at an unexpected time, um, just destroyed. She's She's got, (laughs) yeah, um, cuts and bruises and ripped clothing and like tufts of hair missing and um, nevertheless triumphant in her return. Um, And so she is coming in to... (laughs) <laughs> she's coming in to relay this whole story, this this saga that has been going on for days without anyone else's knowledge um, to her father and her brother. And one of my favorite parts of this story is that she likes, she comes in triumphant and she asks for two tea bags in her tea, which is something <laughs> that she would never get before. Um, but they allow her to have two tea bags in her tea today. Dad, I've earned it. it, it it's an interesting story. It, uh, they kind of they kind of gloss over uh, how she's been able to operate to this degree independent of them knowing about it. But there's an element of free range child here, of where she goes to school by herself, she makes her own food, she prepares for her day, seemingly in her, just kind of her own world. And this is really one of the few moments she's just connected with her brother and her dad, probably at least a week period or perhaps longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she has a hell of a story to tell them about what her last week has been spent doing engaged in a quite literal war with the baboon community on an isolated path that provides a much more direct access to the school that she's walking to with her friends. Yeah, and I guess I wonder if this is a little bit of a glimpse as to what going to school is like outside of first world countries, where it's not like you get picked up by a school bus or your parents drop you off or something like that. It's a place that you have to walk to, and that's a journey. I'm actually curious how, did, how when you guys grew up, how did you guys get to school? Was there was there a bus? Your parents? Hmm? My parents drove me every day. I never took a school bus. Um, my parents drove me um, and actually I was reasonably close to my house in high school so I actually walked home mm-hmm. um, and I walked to school a couple of times but it was like maybe half a mile um oh wow so or or you know in some cases for a little while i was living even closer to school so like it was not at all unreasonable to walk to school but it wasn't like venturing out into the unknown it was you know (laughs) suburbs of baltimore like you were not doing um doing battle with baboons on your no not not even close (laughs) Yeah, BJ had a similar thing of where I was about a mile away from my school. So a lot of the time my parents drove me, but sometimes I walked. The only thing I warred with were cars that were trying to run me over as I was crossing the street. There was no, this uh, war against nature that this character experiences in terms of her uh, day-to-day life. But, uh, yeah, she and her friends, how do we start this? Where she and her friends just find this path that they've never seen before, um, which has seemingly appeared out of the woods one day. It's overgrown, whatever else, but as the crow flies much more direct to their school. And 
as they go about it, they are immediately assailed by this colony of baboons that rips into their stuff, takes everything with them, and just disappears back into the forest. And they're left without their lunch money as they continue on to school for the rest of the day. Yeah, and certainly in this first encounter, there's the possibility that they just happened upon this troop of baboons who want their lunches. Like, really what they take is their lunches yeah. from them. And so maybe they smelled the food. Maybe they just wanted... Um, you know, wanted whatever they were carrying with them to eat, like whatever. It was not, it was unsettling and violent, but it was not like so far outside of the bounds of normalcy that you would question that necessarily. Do you take these as actual baboons or do you, is there a certain sense of maybe this is sort of a group of slightly older uh, children or boys that are preying on kids going to school um like how how literal are we taking the baboon war i think it's a good question i mean i i read it as literal um but i i certainly think that you could have um you could have an almost sort of pan's labyrinth kind of thing where our unreliable narrator is so unreliable that kind of characters have been put on top of other unsettling things. Yeah, I think it really depends what kind of genre we want to put this in. If we put this into like yeah. a work of children's fiction, then it's elaborate fan- it's an elaborate fantasy tale that uh, is, you know, an el- with elements of magical realism put in there. Um, if we take this as going into young adult or even adult literature, then it is a remarkably dark tale about her coping with and describing um, something far more human that she has overcome as part of her daily journey that she's had to endure by herself. Yeah, I guess uh, so colored with this there were a couple of pieces recently on NPR about that part of the country where uh, people venturing out to go do things, they just sort of accept as part of their life that they might get attacked and that's just how you go about your day like you know if you're gonna go into town and get groceries or whatever you might get attacked and that's something that you just sort of have to accept if that's um and so sort of wondering if that might be sort of a part another layer to this story where the baboons are much more like something that she's had to start dealing with going to school because you know she's taking a more reasonable path but there are bullies there or something along those lines that are assaulting her and her friends. And the fact that they're literally stereotypically taking her lunch every day kind of led me to believe that they were a stand-in for something else. I think that they are certainly meant to be evocative of something else. Um, But I think that you can, yeah, I think that you can still read them as, I think you can read them either way with the understanding that they are evocative of something else, whether she is literally placing another narrative, the narrative of the baboons on top of actual human assailants, or whether the baboons are meant to be read as literally here, but are meant to be invoking kind of other dangers and perils in the woods. I'm not sure. It ultimately, I would say, doesn't necessarily matter, just because her sense of triumph either way is still real and profound. This is a, stero- a, st- true, this is a yeah. story of her overcoming an obstacle regardless of what form it operates in. Um, and emerging from it, I mean, she, ha- she has several touchstones, which um, our author likes in terms of, I don't know how to describe them as being semi-magical or not. Like, how do we interpret these um, this bracelet of hers with the bells on it? And how it seems to 
directly be what's calling and even challenging the baboons to attack. So she describes it ringing every time before the baboons descend upon them. Is it just because it's making noise, or is this something that she found it in the surf and she put it together? This is meant to be a semi-magical relic in some way. I I, I guess I, I interpret this as more a realism thing that, you know, it's, you know, sort of similar to bells on a bike or something like that, where, you know, some things might be afraid of it, but some things are drawn to it. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of just the, you know, it's a piece of jewelry that she has and she associated with the the ringing of them with these attacks because she's hyper aware. I think I think that that's probably actually true, but I think one of the things that this this story does so well is that it in getting in kind of the head and worldview of a child in these kind of traumatic situations is that it nevertheless assigns and makes complicated the mythology that she puts on this object. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we are in her head, the fact that she found it in the surf and the fact that it seems to have these kind of magical properties of um, summoning the baboons or whatever, um, that's the kind of stuff we all like believe as kids, right? We all have these like talismans or whatever that we have ass- imbued with these properties um, and these ideas and um, and these functions that, okay, well, maybe they don't have them in real life, but, like, that is really, really real um, as a kid. Mm-hmm. Very, very much so. As part of this, uh, there's definitely an element of serial escalation that's going through this, of where she and her friends are very stubbornly determined to keep taking this path, no matter the abuse that's being inflicted upon them. And this abuse gets more and more violent every time they do this, whereas Sarah's used the first time, you can, they can kind of sort of write it off that they just wanted our lunches. As it goes, they're just straight up trying to hurt them. A message is trying to be sent about that. We're going to take your lunch, and we're also going to beat you if you keep coming on this path. Mm-hmm. I, and I guess this is sort of why the the bully, the group of bullies sort of popped into my head, is it's like there's an escalation of violence and an escalation of, you know, what's the interaction between this group of friends and this baboon war. Um, and also even into sort of more the resolution of it where, you know, the group seems, the group of baboons seems to get larger each time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they have, they have several of these encounters, but these, and these little girls, do we ever get how old they actually are? I sort of was guessing at like 11. Yeah. I was thinking 10 or 11. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Um, but so they, they decide, they dig their heels in and are like, well, there is no reason we should not be on this path. Um, just because these stupid animals have decided that they don't want us here. Mm-hmm. And so they start to develop, in each of these encounters, they come in also with kind of a different plan of how they're going to get the better of them. So they have like dummy lunches that they carry with them, um, or they hide all of their lunches. And then they come in kind of ready for actual battle. I don't know, it's sort of an interesting progression of determination, of where you're going to take this path, we're going to figure out how to do it. Um, and I don't know, I feel like it, it shines a light on how lazy I am. Where it's just like, <laughs> mm, no, that, that sounds like a lot of, wait, a second lunch? Mm, I'll walk a little farther. <laughs> yeah, they, these, are, these are three girls that are in no way inclined to take the path of least resistance. They are stubbornly determined to make a fight out of this. And in the end, they go in intending to to uh, wage battle, and they do, and they win, 
and the colony submits before them and offers them a a boon or a token for their efforts, which I'm just going to pull up the description of it. Uh, stared at the object, it was like holding a piece of midnight. They could see it twinkling stars and vast darkness with space inside it. Nakana Sun refused to touch it. What is this? What is it meant to be? What What is it that, that this colony gives them other than essentially a stand-in for pride and respect and accomplishment? Is it meant to be anything, or is it just meant to be symbolic? I'd be curious if it actually is meant to be an object of what the object really is, because the brothers' words at the end are strange and haunting in some ways. Of where, after she's finished the story and she talks about, you know, I guess this thing is mine now, she sits back just content with herself. The brother says, My little sister looks so exhausted. I wanted to yank off that bracelet and throw it into the ocean, but somehow I knew the rope wouldn't break. Where... All the story's been, you know, it's been a very much a child story describing events. It's her, 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 her heroic achievement or overcoming obstacles or coming into herself. The brother hears this story and just wants to protect her from it, from, ever, from it ever having started. So I'm going to make another parallel that I don't think is actually intended, but I can almost imagine this is an initiation into a gang. Hmm. The hazing aspect of it? Yeah, the hazing aspect, the violence to prove herself, and then a marker that other people are uncomfortable her showing and her being part of it, not being able to separate this from who she is now. I mean, I think there are certainly elements of that, of um, the kind of trials and tribulations you have to go through in a sort of ritual um bonding of a group of people together and i think that the the three girls after the end of this like they have a much different relationship than they did at the beginning of it um partially because of this sort of like journey as well as fight that they have been through they're comrades in arms at this point um so then the other thing that i wanted to bring up that essentially happens at the same point that they uh win this battle was the all caps doom the doom that was the same doom from the or could potentially be the same doom from the kabu kabu right um and i guess i was sort of wondering if this was a kind of similar to a lot of marvel movies and something else when something sort of magical is happening um and that's the sort of heavy base of the soundtrack basically saying like something important is going on this second and it's magical and uh almost oppressive it's the look up from your phone sound beat kind of thing yeah yeah i think that's fair i think you know whether it is meant to be just a kind of stylistic thing or is it's meant to invoke the idea that there is like something hap- like something actual happening mm-hmm. um that is allowing the magic to work i don't know i'm not sure about that but i think i mean i think that we have seen it certainly in those two stories that it it is an indication both narratively and visually on the page that something weird is going on. Um, I guess, does it, does she continue to use this throughout some more of her work? Or is this unique? Or you don't remember? <laughs> I don't remember. Okay, no worries. <laughs> I don't know. And the fact it crosses works definitely makes it seem like a motif of sorts. Um, 
and it definitely does seem to emerge, as you said, um, at the uh, this moments of when there is almost a magical transition. Um, and now, for for Cabo Cabo, it was the moment of when the magic magic started and a new aspect of the journey would begin in some ways. For here, it's kind of announcing their achievement, and now they're bringing out the magical artifact and so. And I will say, so I did a very quick search in Kindle, and the only time those are actually in this volume anyway. Um, Doom is only used in Kabu Kabu and the Baboon War. Okay, interesting. Um, so now something similar might happen in other other works. I'm not I'm not sure. I don't remember. But in this volume, which is interesting because so many of these stories have very similar operate in similar worlds um, or have characters that are sort of mirrors of themselves that it would only happen in these two stories is interesting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is interesting in and of itself uh, Sarah I'd be curious about uh, did, were you able to look up the publication dates as to uh, when these stories came about in her career yes um, which one would you like to know about give us the <laughs> list I'd be curious <laughs> Okay, so um, The Magical Negro uh, first appeared in 2004. Early. Yeah, so let me try and go through each of these and see where we are. So I think that's the earliest one of the ones that we read. Um, let me look at the last one. Yeah, so 2004 is the earliest one. The Magical Negro is the earliest one that appeared. Um, of the ones that we read, next is actually Spider the Artist, which first appeared in 2008. The Baboon War appeared in 2012, um, but then both Kabu Kabu and um, The Ghastly Bird are original to this collection. Well, we, t- we talked about uh, stages of her career and needing to talk to the audience about what she was trying to say. Is it notable then that her two earliest works are the ones that most distinctly end with that last, I'm now the author in this last paragraph talking to you? Is it something that she's not doing as much then? I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that there is certainly an argument that could be made for that. Pretty limited sample size when I'm working from for this assumption, but... Yeah. <laughs> for four stories, and... I, I find yeah. I now have complete breadth and understanding of her career from these four or five short stories we just read. <laughs> I'm ready to offer we opinions. We close the book on this, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, start, I mean, I think we do see that from, from these stories, anyway. I would... Um, I don't know. As you're going for, I would hesitate to make assumptions about her entire career from this, but it is interesting. Yeah. That what we commented on are the two, two of the earliest ones that we read. Yeah, um, but I guess the other side of it, and something that uh, love of our listeners read through, but we also read The Carpet, but that had a similar... It didn't have the same preachiness at the ending, but it had a similar like paragraph at the end that we didn't like as a group. And so, yeah, it just had a different, but it, it's that paragraph, while we didn't like it, and it did sort of pull out in ways it didn't have the same, it didn't seem to be trying to do the same thing necessarily. Right. But on the other hand, Binti, as I remember, was also a little bit later in her work, did have some of that, a little bit more of that preachiness True. Um, yeah. and talking to the reader in it. So I sort of wonder if... Um, it might be part of the audience that she thinks she's writing for rather mm-hmm. than a stage of um, her career. Whereas, you know, when she feels like she needs to defend a piece of work or um, a certain group of people or a wider group of people are going to read something that she feels the need to 
talk to the audience a little bit more rather than let her words speak for itself. That might be true because looking through at least our sample here and including Venti, um, I mean, the one, the stories that seem to do that the most seem to be the most science fiction-y or fantasy specifically. But if you look at like Dodo for, or Dodo, the ghastly bird, um, <laughs> whatever, um, the ghastly bird and the baboon war, like those were two of the more realist based stories that we, that we've encountered. Um, and those were the two that really didn't have, well, no, yeah, the ghastly bird and um, the baboon war didn't have that kind of pull out preachiness at the end. Yeah. I, I think and maybe that has to do with their realism. Yeah. I wonder if she's more comfortable with magical realism and it's not maybe a foray into an unknown territory where she's less comfortable with the body of work. Maybe that's fair. I, I really liked that we read more of her work because, you know, I, I guess, I mean, you know, our, our last episode with Binti, it just, it felt, I felt like I was unfairly judging an author Mm-hmm. Um, who clearly a lot of people really liked, and I feel like now I have a much broader appreciation for her different writing styles and her body of work, um, which I, admittedly we still have probably barely scratched the surface of. I do very much appreciate having a more well-rounded picture of her work. Um, I, I think more than anything, I was just kind of disappointed by Binti. I, I may have built it up in my mind about what to expect out of it, given the awards that it won and everything else. With this, I went in with um, but much more open expectations, and I really was able to appreciate what she does well and the, the uh, unique just certain aspects to her work. I haven't read proper, proper magical realism since a, uh, I think a liberal Spanish literature course back in the day, and it was nice to explore that genre again. Well, I appreciate you all continuing to read these with me. Um, the, the, yeah. the fun of this is to rest we each explore works that we you know, personally enjoy and share them with our friends. It's going to, we're going to explore a lot of different stuff as, the, as this series goes on. We're going to have fun doing it. So uh, this, this was definitely uh, a lot of new themes and a lot of new uh, topics to discuss. And I, This is one of my favorite episodes. I quite enjoy talking about these, these with you guys. I had a lot of fun, too. Do we want to go to what we're reading next? Yeah, um, so we're going to give sort of everybody a little bit of a break um, for the next week or two and do... Shorter reading uh, list. Yeah, shorter reading lists, some short stories, um, and just a reminder to our listeners that we're going to be doing at least one, if not a couple of um, larger delves into full-length books, um, so put a warning on that. Um, we have one upcoming major novel, The Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, um, which I listen to and I'm reading and I think is going to be a great book to discuss. Um, and so hopefully you guys, our listeners have already started reading that. And if not, they will start now because it's a great, fun and fast read, but it is not short. Yeah, being fast. <laughs> yeah, it, it's 400 pages solid. It, it's it, it's going to take a bit. Of, I say it's going to take a bit of time. I've not started yet, so I'm not the only <laughs> one here who hasn't read it. But you anticipate that is it is going to take some time. I mean, just I've I've read the cover. I've read the backward. So you know, I think I've got a good impression of what the my commitment's going to be for this book. But 
<laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Um, oh. And so for for our next week, uh, we're going to read a short story by Spider Robinson called Melancholy Elephants. Um, and I get to tease uh, Spencer a little bit about uh, copyright law. Um, <laughs> and so what I will say about Spider Robinson quickly is that he's sort of seen as um, by a lot of the writers in the genre as sort of the um, heir to the Heinlein mantle, which I don't really understand because um, he's, I would say he's very much a writer of the 60s and 70s. And so there's a lot more of the uh, hippie and uh, culture to his writing. And that very much to me is a sort of jarring disconnect from a lot of Heinlein's writing. Yeah, if you're going to say he's the uh, heir to Heinlein's mantle, I'd ask which. I mean, Heinlein's got like four different eras of where he just wrote entirely different material. If you're you're going with hippie Heinlein, that's fine, but that doesn't have much in common with, you know, like fascist Starship Troopers Heinlein. True. Um, I I guess I see a, a little bit more of threads between a lot of Heinlein's work since I've read quite a lot of it. Um, and maybe we, we will on this podcast, but, um, I just think that that is an interesting descriptor to, um, the, the author of this short story. Um, so that is, uh, up for the reading of, of next week. And, and hopefully our, our listeners will, uh, appreciate this is about, I, I think it's not even 20 pages. Um, so, so it'll be a nice quick read and probably a nice quick episode and give us some time to, uh, prepare for some more, uh, heavy undertakings. Well, with my schedule, I appreciate the boon, BJ. (laughs) But, uh, BJ, you know, I believe there's many other places where where people can listen to our material and leave questions and comments. What would those be again? Um, uh, let me see. So, uh, you can find all of our content. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you would lose track on, uh... (laughs) Mangumtalks.com. Um, we have a number of different podcasts there. We have GOT, Got Questions with Spencer and Lee. Um, every so often we get another episode of Mangum Hoops where Lee and his best friend, the best man at his wedding, Levi Baxter, talk about the goings on in the NBA and other basketball related things. Um, and we also have Whiskey on the Weekends with myself, Spencer, Lee, and Levi where we day drink and uh, some whiskeys and just talk about random things, as well as possibly some new content coming out soon. Um, and you can get all of our content and episodes on our website, as mentioned, as well as Apple iTunes, Stitcher, which I'm not familiar with, but Lee says in his GOT Got Questions summary, and wherever you happen to get podcasts. And if you have any suggestions for us, any talking points, comments, questions, anything like that, you can go to mangumtalks.com and click contact us in the upper right hand corner and uh, we'd love to hear from you guys and that's about it yeah and we very much encourage you to offer your comments this is meant to be as much a book club for us as for you and so if you have any comments questions or even suggestions about what we should explore next we are eager to hear them but for right now folks i really enjoyed talking about these short stories with you and i'm looking forward to our next one for next week me too yep uh thanks for joining us and uh Read something good.